Welcome to the M&A podcast. This episode, I welcome Kevin Kaiser to the podcast. Kevin is a joint professor of finance at Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And we got to know each other when Kevin was a professor at INSEAD in France. There, among other things, he was the leader of an annual week-long M&A course through which we educated finance staff, lawyers and dealmakers in Shell to work on M&A. We're sitting together here in Amsterdam where Kevin teaches a one-week seminar on valuation. Kevin, I'm so thrilled to meet up with you again. It's really my pleasure, Chris. Kevin, what interests you in M&A? That's a great question, actually. What I love about M&A, I can talk about for a half an hour, so I'll try to keep it short. The simple response is, in a complex world which is changing as rapidly as ours is, All of the resources being deployed by governments, by companies, by individual entrepreneurs are designed to serve human needs and interests, wants and desires, make the products and services that deliver happiness to humanity and do it in a way that uses resources efficiently so you can make money so you can do it again next year. The problem is because the world is changing all of the time, human preferences, technologies, regulations, the issues that we all care about. The result is one resource allocation one year may not be the right resource allocation for the next year, with the result that companies that are successful in one year or in one decade may not be positioned to be successful in another year, in another decade. So how do we facilitate the transfer of those resources and the way they're being used and the products and services they're delivering and the efficiency with which they do that? How do we transition those from one year to the next to keep up? with the human preferences and the new technologies and the new interests that we all care about. And one way to do that would be just allow companies to go bankrupt. The ones who aren't transitioning successfully and making the stuff that people really value, they go bust. And then people get released back into society and new entrepreneurs create new businesses and they hire those people. But you can imagine that would be a pretty inefficient way to transition. So instead, we'd like to imagine the companies themselves can change, can adapt. But that's asking quite a bit because the corporate governance structures, the leadership structures, the organizational structures, and modern corporations don't lead to highly adaptive organizations. And that's where mergers and acquisitions come in. If one group of leaders in one organization with one corporate governance structure aren't sufficiently adaptive to the change in the environment, then there'll be an acquisition target. And another leadership team in a different company will see an opportunity to buy that company and push the transition to make the products and the services that people desire and use the resources more efficiently in the process and thereby get what we call synergies, which is the value creation available from an improvement in the resource allocation of the resources being deployed by this company. So for me, M&A is an essential ingredient in a complex changing world to keep up and make sure the resources that we're all trying to manage are being allocated efficiently to deliver the products and services that people value. Thank you. That is uh, very clear. Um, now, you teach valuation, so we probably should start on that theme. Evaluation is an essential element of M&A. Should we start with asking you what is value in the first place? Yeah, this is my favorite question. <laughs> what is value? So in my response to why I'm interested in M&A, implicit in that, you might have picked up, is my interest in value. I'm interested in how value is being created and delivered to humanity. So I think value very simply is happiness. And in, in my book, The Blue Line Imperative, which I published a few years ago with my co-author, David Young, a professor at INSEAD, we define value as happiness. So whatever is perceived as happiness by human beings, by individuals, will be what they value. 
Now, that definition of value is not very helpful, you might think, for an organization or for a company. So we have a second definition of value. And the definition of the value for organizations is the expected future free cash flows, which they deliver by delivering their products and services to humanity, a net of the cost they incur. So the expected future free cash flows discounted at the opportunity cost of capital, which is to say the resources they're deploying could be doing something else, which gives them an opportunity cost. That's the opportunity cost of capital. So essentially, you need to create value in your organization to have a future. And then I would connect these two definitions. The first definition is happiness. People value that which makes them happy. Organizations value for them the expected future free cash flows discount the opportunity cost of capital. What's the connection? The connection between the two is if you imagine a company that makes a part that goes into another part that ends up in an iPad or in a, you know, in a car or something. What's the value of that part? Well, let's imagine that that part and its functionality that it delivers in the form of the iPad that has it included, let's suppose that functionality or that feature of that iPad turns out to be something that makes nobody anywhere any happier. And this is the only part that company makes. And it doesn't deliver any happiness to anybody in the way it's being used in the iPad. Then what's the future for that company? And what I would say is the future is probably pretty dim because if you're allocating resources to making something that nobody on the planet values in any meaningful way, doesn't deliver any happiness or less misery, then you can't expect to stay in business in a market economy. And the reason, as I said, is because that company is deploying resources and those resources have an opportunity cost. They could be doing something else. So that leads us to the definition of value creation. So value is happiness for the human or the expected future free cash flows discounted the opportunity cost of capital for the company. Value creation is any time there's a way to deliver the same amount of happiness but using resources more efficiently and therefore fewer of them or use the same resources but deliver more happiness, then value will be created when we reallocate those resources to that thing that uses them more efficiently and or delivers more happiness with them. So if the part you make doesn't deliver any happiness, the resources that you're deploying will be taken away from you by the market economy You'll be eventually bankrupt, if not acquired in a merger acquisition first. The resources will be deployed in a way they deliver more value, and value thereby will be created. What you're saying is a good valuation looks at two things. Number one, the amount of happiness it creates in the form of discounted cash flows. And number two, the opportunity cost of providing that amount of happiness, which you look at through your opportunity cost of capital. Now, if it's that simple to bring it down to two elements... Why do a lot of people commonly make mistakes in valuation and what mistakes do you see most happening? These are good questions. So I can describe the mistakes maybe, or at least some of the mistakes. I'm familiar with quite a few. The first part of the question is why, if it's so simple, are people making mistakes? And that is going to lead me to pure speculation. So what the mistakes are, I see. Why people make them, harder for me to know. What I would say, however, Mistakes come, I think, to the question why, because people don't have a full appreciation of what value and value creation is. They don't have a full appreciation of the importance of understanding the expected future free cash flows, and they replace that with their own forecast, which can be extremely faulty, and it doesn't necessarily use the right process to estimate what's actually expected, because they just plug in what they think might happen. And then their lack of full understanding of the principles of finance leads them to not be able to properly estimate the discount rate, the opportunity cost of capital and use it correctly. So that's why. And then if you like, I can tell you what are the popular mistakes. The first one I would say is the discount rates. That's a complex one, but people show up and estimate the weighted average cost of capital. Very often, they use the cost of funding. 
sometimes that's fine. Sometimes it's not fine. And the reason is because, and I like to say it this way, we get our money from the investors and the investors have a desire to get a return on their money. What return would they like to get? And the quick answer is they'd like to get a return of infinity if they could, which of course they can't, but that would be fantastic. They pay nothing and they get something or whatever they do pay, they get an infinite return on it. So we could ask the question, what return would they like to get? But we get a silly answer, which is infinity. A better question for the investors is what's the return below which you won't go? below which you choose to just consume instead of invest in the first place. And for each individual investor, that will be a different answer. What we look at in finance is the perspective from what we call the fully diversified or the well-diversified portfolio. And that led us to a theory called the capital asset pricing model, the CAPM, in which we measure the risk of an investment relative to the fully diversified portfolio. And the metric we use for that measurement is beta. The beta is measuring the covariance of a given investment relative to the fully diversified portfolio. But what that means is the risk that matters in any given investment is only that risk which is connected to or related to, is in relationship with the fully diversified portfolio. For a lot of people, that's not very intuitive. And so they choose to not use the theories and principles of finance. And instead, they just say, well, what's the cost of the funding? Instead of looking at the riskiness and the beta, they look at the cost of the funding. That leads to mistakes in the discount rate, first and foremost. There's other mistakes they make in the discount rate. That's one of them. Another big mistake that I see, the role of growth in valuation is really, I think, not fully understood. For many people, and we have formulas, which if we had a video right now, we could look at the formula. But for many people out there, they'll be familiar with the perpetuity formula or the continuing value formula, the terminal value formula. In the terminal value formula, they might be familiar with the continuing value or terminal value equals the free cash flow of the final year divided by the WAC minus G. If you're not familiar, feel free to Google that. In that formula, the G in the denominator makes it appear that if growth goes up, if there's more growth in the terminal value, that makes the value go up. Well, that might seem somewhat intuitive to some people out there. What's the problem? And the problem with that simple formula is it's deceptive because growth can be either value-creating growth or it can be value-destroying growth. And simply saying we're increasing the growth in the terminal period doesn't tell me which type of growth you're increasing. Are you increasing the value-creation growth or are you increasing the value-destruction growth? Growth is the outcome of an investment. If you invest in a project that's creating value and thereby grow, then, of course, it would make sense the value goes up. But if you invest in a way that generates growth, but the investment itself is a negative NPV, what that means very simply is the price you pay for the growth is more than the value of the growth. So you overpaid for it. I paid $100 million for future cash flows that are only worth $60 million. The result is I just destroyed $40 million. That's value destruction. But I grew. In the formula, the investment you make to deliver the growth should be showing up in the numerator in the free cash flow. But the mistake that I see is people change the G in the denominator of that formula, which makes the denominator smaller, makes the value go up. They don't put in the investment needed to get the growth. Growth, as I said, is an outcome, not an input. You need to do the investment. The investment needs to show up before you can change the growth, right? That mistake is made by nearly every practitioner I know. The result of that is they overestimate the benefit of growth. They encourage people to grow. That leads to mergers and acquisitions that are growth-motivated, but which, in fact, are destroying value. And we say, as a result of that, could be as simple as a misunderstanding of that formula, 
growth-motivated investments, including a lot of mergers and acquisitions, which lead to value destruction because they're motivated by growth rather than value creation. And you might argue that uh, these could be the models of the analyst, uh, but what you actually say is that, well, actually, the stock market uh, very well knows when value is destroyed because very often uh, the value of the acquiring company doesn't go up while the selling company does see a value increase. And that would prove your point. So actually, I'm really into this theme of value destruction in M&A. So would you have a suggestion on how the industry can improve its performance? I have to interpret the question a little bit. So by the industry, the industry associated with mergers and acquisitions is a broad range, right? There's lawyers, there's investment bankers, there are accountants, there's corporate titans, there's boards of directors. I mean, there's many roles that are being played in mergers and acquisitions. One of the simplest things to say is corporate governance itself. And what I mean by that is the following. Companies have the, the issue we're all familiar with, which is the managing shareholder of money and lenders money, and they're dealing with, you know, humans and employee roles, humans and supplier roles, humans and customer roles. They're responsible for all of these various stakeholders. And in the process, they often misunderstand, in my view, from my experience with boards of directors, they misunderstand the importance of shareholder value as a metric to help them balance and prioritize across all of the other stakeholders with whom they're, you know, responsible for managing relationships. The result is, they lose sight of the importance of understanding, measuring, and managing shareholder value as the ultimate number that tells you how well you're managing all the other stakeholders in a balanced and priority way. And so they themselves aren't focused on the metric, and they themselves aren't using value measures correctly. So if I do a good valuation, they might say, that's great, thank you so much, but there are other factors as well we have to take into account. So they're not really respectful of valuation, and they're not using it very well. Even if they are respectful of it, the reality is their interests aren't necessarily aligned with value maximization because of the way their compensation works. They then put in front of the executives compensation targets, which I refer to as red line targets. And a red line target is where I might say to you, you know, please create value, but also make sure you hit this year's profit objectives. And now I've put you in a very difficult spot because it may be that hitting this year's profit objective, a specific target on a profit number, may be in conflict with long-term value creation. It might help you to hit that profit target to do a merger or acquisition, in which case your motive to do the merger or acquisition isn't about long-term value, in which case doing a valuation isn't going to be necessarily very relevant for you because that's not what you're doing it for. Similarly, they might have objectives about diversification. They might have objectives about growing the overall business, the revenues, expanding into new geographies. They have objectives for their mergers and acquisitions that aren't necessarily consistent with value creation, with the result that improving on the valuation part isn't relevant because that's not what they're interested in anyway. So that's about corporate governance and the way businesses are managed and how they think about their priorities and their objectives. The rest of the industry we could talk about for a long time, right? So, you know, there's consultants out there, there's the lawyers out there, there's the investment bankers out there. They all have their own incentives, and those incentives also play a role in how this industry operates. And so the ones often targeted, you could say fairly or unfairly, are the investment bankers who are highly skilled. They're very good at their jobs. And one thing that I think you might have talked about before here is they are incentivized to get the deal done, which I think is perfectly legitimate, by the way. 
And I like to portray the investment bankers as, first of all, one of the most important professions on the planet because what they do, in essence, is they make markets. They find the price that clears supply and demand in selling shares to an IPO market, in selling debt to a debt market, in doing mergers and acquisitions or divestures between buyers and sellers. You know, finding the price that clears supply and demand is an extremely important role to be played that enables any market to function. But what that means, if we take it from another perspective, is they're agnostic on value. It doesn't matter to them if the buyer is paying a price above the value or below the value. Their job is to find the price that clears supply and demand. It's up to the buyer and the seller to determine whether the price is right or wrong. If, in the process of doing that, they allow prices to be paid that are too low for the seller, they therefore shouldn't be selling, or too high for the buyer, they therefore shouldn't be buying, it's honestly, in my view, not the job of the investment banker to point that out. That is not their job. If they were to start to do that, they would not be doing their primary role, which is making markets, which is what they're here to do. But here's the problem. Many clients make the mistake of asking the investment bank advisor to give them an opinion on the value. And I consider this to be an unfair thing to do to an investment banker because their pay structure is, I will find the price of clear supply and demand and get this transaction done. And we say, great, that's your job. Thank you. But in addition to that job, could you please tell me what's the price I should pay so that I don't destroy value? You've put that person in a really difficult spot. It's sort of like if I tell you, could you please hit this target before the end of the year, but please do it in a way that's good for the long-term health of the company. And you know, because you're smart, these are inconsistent things I've just asked you to do. You're in a tough spot. I'm the one who put you in the tough spot. You're a good guy, and I just put you in a tough spot. My view is clients are putting investment bankers in tough spots. They're saying, please help me do this transaction, but by the way, do the valuation and tell me what the value is and don't have me overpay. So this is a conflicting objective you've given your investment banker. He or she is in a tough spot. And you can be sure that they're going to feel this conflict. They're going to respond to it the best they can because they're good people. The result is going to be they're probably going to make sure the transaction happens for the simple reason that that's the basis on which you pay them. And so if I tell you I'm paying you on hitting a target, and I say, by the way, do long-term value while you do it, you're going to do what I pay you for. And so is the investment banker. Kevin, that's why I've argued that actually the pay should be uh, linked to the value creation measured later on. But that's uh, something for the future. Mm -hmm. So let me summarize what we covered so far. A good valuation looks at the amount of happiness, which has a form of discounted cash flows going forward. Uh, which it compares with the opportunity cost of capital, the effort that you need to make to get these cash flows. And two of the mistakes we were talking about that people make in valuation, one is the cost of funding. Don't think it is the cost of borrowing for you, but that should be more like the cost below which you don't want to invest. And secondly, we're talking about the misperception that growth is actually driving value. It doesn't have to. And uh, you have to be really careful with that. And then value destruction caused by many different ways. But number one was uh, in the corporate governance. And number two, with the structure uh, that the industry have with uh, lawyers and mainly investment bankers being actually paid for making a market rather than providing sound valuations. We'll take a break here and listen to an ad for our sponsor, Pilco. Pilco & Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. 
Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. Welcome back to the M&A podcast. I'm sitting here with Kevin Kaiser and we're talking about valuation. I think I just heard you say something about red line management, but your book is actually called Blue Line Management. So can you explain to me what that's all about? Absolutely. Also one of my favorite questions. I came up with this uh, color characterization of red line and blue line management with my co-author, David Young at INSEAD. And uh, what we mean by that is the red lines that I referred to a few minutes ago are the visible metrics that we see in our business. And we see them, you know, for-profits and publicly traded companies, but also governments and charities. And, you know, if you're an athlete and you like to run, you keep track of your time on your runs. There's all these visible metrics that tell us how well we're doing. Those metrics are extremely useful. The thing with red line management is when you take those metrics and make them your objective. And the danger there is an indicator of something isn't the thing itself. And if you start managing that indicator instead of the thing itself, you may compromise the thing. So as an example, uh, in business, we want to manage, manage the long-term value of the company, maximize the long-term value of the company. The indicators that indicate how well we're doing that is, do people buy our products? Do we have a good market share? Are we growing our market share? Are we making money? Do we have profits? You know, those are good indicators of whether we're succeeding in our efforts to deliver long-term value. The problem with the metrics isn't that they're not good metrics. The problem is if we replace the objective of long-term value with this metric of market share or growth, revenues, profits, then suddenly it doesn't work in the same way. So while you're creating value, will your profit probably be growing? Yeah, probably. But does that mean simply making profit go up is equivalent to creating long-term value? And the answer is no. Cause and effect doesn't go that way. There are too many ways to make profit go up in a short term that could be compromising, damaging to long-term value. So our color code is blue line, we imagine, is the value of your company, the value of the enterprise. And again, it could be a nonprofit, it could be a government entity, it could be family-owned, it could be private equity-owned. It's just the value of the enterprise. And as we manage successfully the long-term value of that enterprise, the blue line that represents that value will be rising. The problem is that the blue line is the expected future free cash flows. And because they're expected, that means probabilistic, in future, which means we haven't seen them yet, they can't be known. They're not observable. And we discount those expected future free cash flows at the opportunity cost of capital, which is reflective of the riskiness of the investment relative to this well-diversified portfolio. We measure that with beta, but also can't be known exactly. Instead, therefore, we think of the visible red lines as the indicators that help guide us as we manage the blue line, which itself is not observable. The result is we talk about always be relentlessly focused on creating value, but recognizing you can't directly see it, 
Use the indicators wisely and carefully and with integrity to help guide you in the process. So very good companies are very good at using indicators without becoming obsessed by them or replacing the long-term objective of value creation with them and instead using them to learn and improve over time. So blue line management companies use lots of red lines. They look at lots of indicators, but they use them for learning and improvement and keep the focus on the blue line. Red line companies, in the way we characterize it, slip and they replace the blue line objective with just the red lines. And the individuals, the managers, the leaders in the company just focus on those targets, on those red lines that they've identified, which might at one point have been consistent with long-term value, but often lose their way. And they become red line focused, lost the focus on the blue line, and end up destroying value as a result. So an indicator could be your market share. And it might be useful to really keep track of your market share. But when it becomes a target in itself, you might overinvest in order to keep growing your market share. And then you start destroying value. Exactly. So why is it difficult for companies to do this in practice? Another one of those questions we can talk about forever. I'll try to be brief. The simple response is human beings and human nature. Do we care about long-term value? Yes, we do. But do we also get short-term orientations? Often we do. And just as a person, it's sometimes difficult for us to look at more than two hours or two days or two weeks or certainly more than two years. And so taking into account our behaviors and the impact we have over many years and decades and the well-being of an organization is difficult for us to keep track on if we're being paid on a monthly, weekly, or quarterly, or annual basis. And so our own natural tendency to be fairly short-term oriented ourselves, and maybe I'm, I'm revealing too much about my personality, but it turns out humans don't really care that much about the very long term as much as we all think we maybe should. Then on top of that orientation on the short term, the incentive schemes in the organizations make it worse because they pay us on the basis of delivering short-term targets, which were already short-term oriented people in the first place. Now they're paying us and make us even more short-term than many of us already are which makes it extremely difficult. Our intrinsic motivators tend to not be as long-term oriented as we might like, and the extrinsic motivators that we're given by our organizations make us even more short-term oriented. And so it forces us to look at the red lines and focuses us on the red lines, and we lose sight of the blue line. And we could talk for a long time because the next question you might ask is, well, why do they do that? Why do they give us these short-term targets? And the answer, I think, would be, and I mentioned this earlier, the corporate governance structures of our organizations, as they've been designed over the years, decades, and centuries past, they haven't evolved to the point where they can replace easily these short-term target perspectives with the long-term value perspectives. You mentioned earlier the shareholders and share prices are pretty clear. If you grow your company in an acquisition in a way where you destroy value because you pay more for it than the value of it, it is normal for the share price to go down. If you divest a business or divest an asset in a way where you sell it for more than the value to you, your share price goes up. The shareholders are very familiar with and share prices are very revealing of when you destroy value, when you create value, and it's consistent with some of the themes we've been talking about. If the capital market finds out that you are giving your people short-term targets and short-term incentives in a way that's bad for the future, when they find out that you've been doing that, your share price goes down. So we never tell them we're doing that. We say we're staying long-term focused, we're doing the right thing for the long-term. We say the words, but when they find out what we're doing in fact, 
the share price goes down. So the capital market is aware of this. So I do not blame the capital market for this. I blame lack of understanding at the board of directors level, lack of understanding at the leadership level, and a natural orientation on the short term, which they exacerbate in the way they compensate us inside the companies. So Kevin, which companies do get it right in your view? Um, what is it that they do well then? Yet another great question. So I think which companies, there's a range of companies across a range of industries who are who are good at this and who are getting better with it over time. Uh, many different reasons for that. And I, w- I would refer to some research I think some of your folks might be familiar with by McKinsey, which is the tactics, the approaches, how companies do this is done differently by different companies. And those who approach it in a programmatic way, as defined by McKinsey, which is they do you know a larger number of small to medium size and every now and then large transactions, but they do it in a programmatic way, tend to be very good at this. The organizations I think of, tech companies, Microsoft or Amazon, pharmaceutical companies, you know, Pfizer, IBM has been very good at this. There's companies in different industries that have been very successful doing M&A in a programmatic way where they've developed internally the skills to be able to do the due diligence, ask the right questions, gather the right data. But it was very important in addition to being programmatic and disciplined and careful. To me, what's necessary is to really understand how the acquisition target complements your competitive advantage. So we talked already about the danger of going after mergers and acquisitions to achieve objectives around growth or objectives around diversification or hitting targets as we've described them. If you go after acquisition targets in a programmatic way with a deliberate focus on enhancing your competitive advantage or enhancing the sustainability of the time that you get to have a competitive advantage, how you do that is to me essential. So building competitive advantage, doing it in a programmatic way and being disciplined in the application. And then finally, of course, the value assessment. The key to creating value is don't overpay, which was a phrase you used a little bit earlier. Overpay is a reference to price relative to value, which means in addition to being programmatic, focused on the value creation that comes from adding to your competitive advantage, you have to make sure you don't overpay, which means valuation skills are also essential. So it's a, it's a wide range of skills. And so if we say programmatic, almost by definition, it sort of means you've put together all the skill sets from the due diligence and the valuation, the negotiation, the post-merger integration, and making sure all of it is in the context of strategy where you enhance your competitive advantage. And so my favorite ones, if you like, Microsoft and probably Amazon, are because in addition to all those things, the last thing I want to throw in there, they approach these things in a way that they consider them an experiment more than a decision. And what I mean by that is the following. We never know how any given investment is going to actually work out. If we say we've made this decision to buy this company, it's a bit fatalistic. And now we want to really make sure afterwards that we demonstrate we made the right decision. But what that does is it stilts and stultifies and hinders the learning process. We want to make sure that we don't lose the possibility and the opportunities to learn after the acquisition, especially when it turns out some of our assumptions and some of our hypotheses that drove the acquisition in the first place may have been misplaced. And so I like to think in terms of experiments. So I think of just Bezos. Everything he does at Amazon is an experiment. He does it and he designs it in a way to make money, of course. But he also designs it in a way to maximize the learning that comes from the decision. So when they bought Whole Foods, you could say that was a crazy acquisition for Amazon to make, you know, buying this bricks and mortar, you know, Whole Foods retailer. But I think inside Amazon, they viewed it not as much as an acquisition decision, but as an acquisition experiment. What can we learn? 
by doing this acquisition, about running bricks-and-mortar businesses, about getting synergies across the, the online versus the retail. All the experiment mindset does is enables you to recognize when things aren't working, adapt quickly, and learn in the process to be able to get better at it. So instead of viewing an acquisition as a decision, a big one that's expensive and commits a lot of resources, you can still commit the resources. It's still a big one, but just view it as an experiment. And with that change in mindset, approach it with a much more learning-oriented approach where you can come out of it with an understanding of things you didn't see before and an ability to change and adapt and become better at what you already were doing and now what you're doing together with the company you acquired. Well, Kevin... I really like the way in which some of the things you're saying now connect with both my experience and some of the things we've been discussing earlier in the podcast. We actually had Jeff Rutnicki from McKinsey explaining us about programmatic acquirers. And I recognize the experimentation approach from our time in Shell when we made the first renewables acquisitions, which really required a mindset of not knowing it all, but still getting into it with a mindset to learn. So if I summarize, you talked about blue line management as opposed to red line management, which would be focused on indicators, which you can use from time to time, uh, but don't get stuck on them. But your long-term focus should be on blue line management, meaning steadily increasing the overall valuation of the company. Then we said, well, why does that still go wrong in so many companies? And that is our short-term focus and outlook. And not just the fact that we all have that as human beings, but that is amplified by the fact that our incentives are set in, in short-term ways. And then we talked about examples of companies that get it right, Amazon, Microsoft, and they tend to target their acquisitions to maximize their competitive advantage, be very good on their value assessments, and when necessary, take an experiment mindset to these. Well, thanks, Kevin, for all your wisdom. It's been great to meet up here in Amsterdam. It's been absolutely my pleasure. I love this topic. I love sharing with you once again from our time back at Shell at INSEAD uh, some of these thoughts together, and it's been a real pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Mergers and Acquisition podcast. I'm interested in your feedback to this podcast, which you can provide via pillcode.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>